0: you could say it was a wardrobe malfunction that forced the cancellation of NASA's first ever all-female spacewalk. In March of 2019, astronauts Anne McLean and Christina Koch were planning to replace some old solar panel batteries on the International Space Station. I probably don't have to tell you that it's a good idea to have a snug fit for your suit when you go into space, not have it hang like a potato sack. Well, here's what happened. NASA didn't have enough suits for the women. Both astronauts required a size medium, and there was only one medium available. The spacewalk was scrubbed. Astronaut Ann McClain was replaced by male astronaut Nick Haig, who did the walk with Christina Cook. Believe me, observers took note.
1: The spacesuits was really interesting, I thought, because what happened there was such a good example of how we treat the male average body as the average human body.
0: Of course, this embarrassing oversight for the agency was more than a wardrobe slip-up. It was a result of default thinking. All spacesuits are designed for men. None take into account the difference in body shape between men and women because the spacesuit makers didn't take women's measurements. In fact, spacesuits haven't changed in 40 years. So not only did they not have spacesuits for women aboard the ISS, even the men's suits they did have weren't of the right size. Is this symptomatic of a larger problem? I'm Seth Shostak.
2: I'm Molly Bentley, and this is Big Picture Science produced at the SETI Institute. In this episode of our regular look at critical thinking, science relies on data, and data are fundamental to the modern world use data to build things, allocate resources, and conduct medical studies, but a surprising amount of them don't take gender into account. This kind of bias even infects our intelligent machines, which then exhibit racial and gender stereotypes. So how does this affect us? Our rational selves are wired to believe in the data, but what if the data aren't neutral? It's Skeptic Check Data Bias.
0: Now here's an example of something that you wouldn't think incorporates bias, snow plowing schedules. I mean, nothing is as pure as the driven snow, right? Maybe, unless what's being driven is a snow plow. Because as researchers dove into the patterns of snow removal in a small town in Sweden, the gender bias that emerged was as obvious as the carrot on a snow person's face. Why it matters, we'll find out in a moment, but it's one of many studies revealing hidden gender bias and described in the book, Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men.
1: My name is Caroline Criado Perez and I am a writer and feminist activist. She put her
2: money and that of her fellow Brits where her mouth is when she fiercely campaigned to convince the Bank of England to include Jane Austen on its 10-pound note, the only woman to currently appear on English currency other than the Queen. Caroline Criado Perez's efforts were rewarded with enthusiastic support, a barrage of hateful, even violent messages on Twitter, and... The image of Jane Austen as the new face on the 10-pound note. Now, if she can only get medical researchers to take women's biology into account when they
0: study heart disease. Her premise is that women's lives and their biology are different from men's. Not having sex-aggregated data, that is, data collected and analyzed separately on males and females, has consequences ranging from inconvenience to catastrophe. The stand-in for average human is often the default male the regular guy. But let's begin with a hopeful story in the UK where an example of protective wear just might suggest the shape of things to come.
2: Let's start with the good news.
1: Okay. Pregnant (laughs)
2: workers at a, (laughs) yes, there is some good news. Pregnant workers at a cement plant in Nottinghamshire in the UK will be among the first in your country to receive high visibility jackets and protective wear. It's what's known as PPE or personal protective equipment. This will accommodate their pregnancy. Well, Carolyn, provide the context that helps us understand why this is big news.
1: Well, basically, because when it comes to the workplace, and that goes from levels of chemical exposure through to personal protective equipment, as you've mentioned, has been designed around the male body. And, you know, in some areas it's so bad that really personal protective equipment is a misnomer because not only is the equipment not protecting women, it can in certain instances be actually causing them harm. For example, female police officers having to wear body armour that hasn't been designed to fit the female form one woman revealed that she'd had to have breast reduction surgery. Uh, one woman, in fact, died because she had to remove her stab vest in order to be able to open a door using a hydraulic ram, and then she was stabbed and killed. So, you know, this is amazingly in 2019. This is an incredible step forward.
2: Well, let's say more about this concept of the default male or the regular guy, as you put it, and and what gender data bias is. What is gender data bias?
1: So basically, the vast majority of information that we have in the world is based on male bodies and typical male lifestyle patterns. So that goes from travel data to economic data to medical data. Basically, all of it has been collected on men. And this has led to what is called reference man. Reference man is basically your average man. And he is repeatedly used as if he is an average human, which, of course, he isn't. He's very much not average for women. And this causes all sorts of problems. So, for example, you know, one of the first examples that I came across that led me to writing the book in the end was the difference between male and female heart attack symptoms. And I had always been taught, as I think a lot of people have, that the heart attack symptom of pain in the chest and down the left arm is just your typical heart attack symptoms. And it actually turns out those are typical for men. And actually only one in eight women experience chest pain, for example. Women experience a heart attack with symptoms that feel more like indigestion, uh, nausea, breathlessness, fatigue. And yet these symptoms, which are extremely typical for women, are just called atypical because they're not typical for men. And yet chest pain, which isn't typical for women, is called typical. And what it leads to, for example, in heart attack symptoms, is women dying. Women don't realise they're having a heart attack. Even if they do think there's something wrong with them and do go to the doctor, the doctor often is missing the heart attack and sending them home.
2: Is this an example then of the data on women not having been collected or are there cases in gender data bias where data have been collected but they're just not being applied? Do we see both things?
1: The vast majority of the time it's that the data simply hasn't been collected. But there are instances where the data was collected, but it's been discounted. So for example, in a lot of occupational health research that was done historically and typically male occupations, like mining and construction, even when there were women working in those industries and so the data was collected, the female data was discounted as a confounding factor. And this idea of women being a confounding factor is something that still crops up again and again as a reason for not collecting data in the first place.
2: And you report that even recently, in the last year or two, uh, researchers claim that biological sex doesn't matter when it comes to medical studies. And so the result is that from animal studies to the studies of cells to uh, patient studies, that researchers are using either male animals, male cells, or men because there's this idea that biological sex does not matter.
1: Yeah, I should say that obviously there are quite a lot of researchers who do get that this matters. The problem is that there aren't enough of them. I mean, cell studies, you know, that's the first stage of developing any kind of medication. And at that stage, a lot of things get ruled out as simply not working. And one study that I came across I found incredibly suggestive in that it looked at how male and female cells would respond to oestrogen in terms of ability to fight off a virus. And they found that the male cell was not able to use the oestrogen and the virus took over the cell. The female cell was able to use the oestrogen and fought off the virus. Now, if you'd only tested in male cells at that stage, you would have come away with the conclusion that oestrogen doesn't do anything. And you have to wonder how many medications, treatments, have we missed out on because they didn't work on male cells?
2: Although it was good to see that when facial wrinkle studies were done... (laughs) 92% 92% of those participants were women.
1: Yeah, that is the one area where that I found that it was a bias in favor of women. Yep.
2: Well, Carolyn, the data bias, okay, so it, it extends to medical studies, uh, the design of um, of protective clothing, but also how our cities are designed. And after reading your book, I cannot walk down a sidewalk without thinking about the snow plowing schedule <laughs> in Karlskoga, Sweden. Mm-hmm. And, and you write that it was not designed to be sexist, but but tell us what happened.
1: So the local town councillors in Karlskoga, because it was Sweden, were having a gender audit of all their policies. And someone made a joke about how, you know, at least the gender people will keep their noses out of snow clearing, you know, because how could snow clearing be sexist? That's obviously ridiculous. But then when they looked into it, they realised that actually snow clearing is incredibly gendered because travel is incredibly gendered. So men and women tend to travel differently. Men are much more likely to drive and they're much more likely to do a twice daily commute just in and out of work. Women, because women tend to shoulder the majority of unpaid care work responsibilities. In fact, women do 75% of the world's unpaid care work. Women, for example, in the UK and the US have five fewer hours of leisure time than men every week. So as a result of this, women have a more complicated travel pattern. They're more likely to, for example, be dropping the kids off at school before going to work and then visiting an elderly relative perhaps on the way home from work, picking up the groceries as well. And this means that they're doing lots of short interconnected trips, which is called trip chaining. And they're also much more likely to do these trips on public transport. So for all these reasons, women are much more likely to be pedestrians than men. And when it came to the snow clearing, they found that they were clearing the snow off the major road arteries that men were using to commute to work first, and only then coming onto the pavements and local roads. And so they decided, well, It's probably harder to walk or push a buggy through three inches of snow than to drive, so we'll switch it up. And they decided to clear the pavements and around bus stops and outside schools and and on the local roads first. And then they did the major out-of-town commuting. And they didn't expect that to cost them any extra money. And it didn't cost them any extra money. What they didn't expect was that it would save them money off their health bill. Because what they found was that the number of admissions to accident and emergency as a result of falling over and injuring yourself in icy conditions dramatically reduced because it was the women who were falling over and hurting themselves because they were the pedestrians. And the thing that's really interesting about that is that, you know, you could have come at it from either way if you'd been collecting sex disaggregated data and analysing it. Because obviously, I mean, they had been collecting the data. That's how they were able to find out. But if they'd been analysing it, they might have stop to wonder, why is it that something like 70% of the falls and icy conditions are pedestrians and the vast majority of those are women? You know, what's going on here? But it really just does show why collecting data is just a smart thing to do, because it means that you can allocate your resources much more sensibly.
2: And if we did collect data on women, the result you imagine, after reading all your studies, is it would We would have to redesign almost everything from car seats to the size of piano keyboards, which is amazing. We would have to adjust the temperature in offices. I mean, so many things would change when you start factoring women and the data from women's lives, from their work Schedules to their biology into the equation?
1: Well, I think it's very important not to make it sound too overwhelming (laughs) because you're right, it would mean a certain number of changes. But for example, something like recalculating office temperature based on the average human rather than the average man, that's not like a really difficult thing to do. That's just twisting a thermostat. So that would be okay. Car design. That's a really big one. Uh, Women are 47% more likely to be seriously injured and 17% more likely to die if they're in a car crash. And it's because, yet again reference man. We've designed car safety around reference man, the 50th percentile male. That's the most commonly used car crash test dummy. And until very recently, indeed, the only car crash test dummy. And we've sort of introduced in the EU, for example, what is called a female crash test dummy, but it's actually just a scaled down male dummy. And women, of course, aren't just scaled down men. You know, women have different pelvises. Uh, We've got different muscle mass distribution, which affects things like how we'll be thrown forward, whether or not we'll suffer from whiplash. But Not only is this dummy not actually based on anthropometric female data, it's only tested in the passenger seat in one out of the five regulatory tests. And the result is, you know, for example, on regulatory tests, we have no no data on on how safe the the car may be for a female driver. And actually, that's a huge deal because one of the most dangerous seats for a woman is the driver's seat because in order to be able to reach the pedals and see over the dashboard, a woman has to sit much further forward, further forward than is safe, in fact, further forward than what is considered the standard seating position. But, you know, obviously women have to do that to reach the pedals. So they would need to redesign that. But then again... We're redesigning cars all the time. So again, that doesn't seem like it would be such a difficult thing to me. Well,
2: I appreciate you telling me to find the perspective here, but there are so many cases. (laughs) And then when you give that case of the car, that women are more likely to be injured. Well, I just didn't um, want to scare our listeners off. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, here's something that won't scare them off, but I found this amusing. So so Carolyn, if I start if I start talking to you like this with a lower register, <laughs> you'll know why I'm doing that, won't you?
1: I do know why you're doing that, yes. Would you like me to explain? Why am I doing that? <laughs> um, So basically, the voice recognition software that we have developed, the algorithm for it has been trained on almost exclusively male data, male voices, and the result is simply that they are less able to recognize female voices. And you don't need to go far to find examples of this. I mean, so many of my friends talk about how Alexa will listen to their male partner, but not to them. I came across stories from women whose car voice recognition system wouldn't listen to them in the driver's seat, but would listen to their male partner in the passenger seat. So, you know, the guy's even further away and and it still prefers his voice.
2: Well, finally, Carolyn, because these default assumptions of what is a normal person, the the default male, are so powerful and pervasive, what questions should we be asking ourselves to check our own assumptions and biases?
1: Mm, God, that's a very good question. I mean, I really think that the thing to do is just collect sex-disaggregated data. I suppose the things that we can ask ourselves is just to try and notice when you are thinking of Human, if you're always picturing a man, because the reality is that is what most of us are doing. And I think that the thing that is really important for everyone to do in just your day to day conversation, but for journalists who are writing about scientific research studies, if it is all male, do not refer to it as gender neutral, refer to it as applying only to men. And it's a small thing, but I think it allows us to have this conversation and have this realization as a society how often we are actually talking about men when we think we're talking about humans.
2: Thank you so much for speaking with us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Caroline Criado-Perez is a journalist and author of Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. There are many factors other than gender that can make a person less visible to society, such as race, poverty, or disability. But if you think inequality will be crushed when we turn decision-making over to intelligent machines, well, I appreciate your sunny viewpoint but it's still early days for AI. One study reveals that some facial recognition can't accurately identify black faces.
3: She found alarming rates of misclassification with black women, dark-skinned women in particular. Rates of up to 35% misidentification, whereas these systems were identifying white men at basically 99% accuracy rates
2: the assumptions hard-coded into some AI algorithms, next.
0: It's our regular look at critical thinking. Do the data that you use give you the whole story? Skeptic check this episode, Data Bias on Big Picture Science. been talking in this episode of Big Picture Science about what happens when data aren't neutral. If you can admit that humans have blind spots at best, blind prejudice at worst, but believe that logical networks of silicon circuitry and copper traces will save us with their impartial decision making, well, picture this. Caroline Criado Perez lowering her voice to a male timbre to get her speech recognition to work. The AI being built now reflects the society we
2: live in now, because its first teachers are us.
3: There's nothing artificial about these systems. These are systems that from the beginning stage of conceiving of a product to the end point of releasing a product and every decision made in between involving selection of training data, the writing of the algorithm, the setting of the parameters that determine levels of accuracy in terms of you know how the algorithm will work, All of those decisions are made by human beings. Those are human choices. And human biases can creep in at every stage of that process.
2: And so data bias isn't limited to the lack of measurements that lead to an absence of female spacesuits and antediluvian ideas about gender built into our society. But now the advent of AI could actually amplify data bias.
0: The widespread use of AI technology to make decisions The use of facial recognition systems, for example, has become an issue for civil rights advocates.
3: My name is Cade Crockford. I'm the director of the Technology for Liberty program at the ACLU of Massachusetts.
2: Founded in 2013, the Technology for Liberty program was set up to ensure that civil rights and civil liberties keep pace with technology. This includes privacy protection, for example, and understanding how raw data
0: are used in the criminal legal system. Facial recognition is an example of AI used to investigate crimes. But it's not just law enforcement. Anyone who wants to use image recognition can access this technology. But the public use of facial recognition is of special concern to Cade Crockford and other civil liberty advocates.
2: Amazon's software called Recognition, that's recognition with a K, is used in many ways. For example, to automate identification and provide security. It is also increasingly used by law enforcement to scan mugshots, and it became the rallying cry for resisting facial recognition when Amazon pitched it to Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, to identify immigrants.
0: The ACLU conducted a test of the recognition software. It ran photos of members of the U.S. Congress through a mugshot database. The result? The software falsely identified 28 lawmakers as criminals and more than half of them were people of color. Cade Crockford says new uses of the technology have prompted an alternative term, face surveillance.
3: One of the reasons that we use the phrase face surveillance is that I think when most people think about face recognition technology, they conjure an image of CSI, right, a detective show where police maybe have an image of a suspect and they don't know who the person is. They want to identify that person. They run that image against a database, say, of mugshots or a registry of motor vehicles database, a driver's license database to try to identify that criminal suspect. There are a number of other ways that technology can be and is being used right now by government agencies. Another is to effectively turn every surveillance camera in a community into a sentient device. And by that, I mean in many communities today, it remains the case that surveillance cameras are dumb. They are watching what's happening. Yes, they are recording what's happening in their field of vision, but they're not telling us a whole lot about what they see. So it's possible now to supercharge those camera networks that are controlled by state and local law enforcement with this artificial intelligence technology, effectively facilitating mass tracking and cataloging on an automated level of every single person's movements, habits, associations in public space. Wow. Well, this idea that algorithms that drive face recognition
2: systems or face surveillance, as you put it, could be biased is one that may be unfamiliar to many. And I wonder if you could give an example of how bias in face recognition systems have real world consequences.
3: Absolutely. There's a researcher at MIT just down the road from where I'm sitting named Joy Buolamwini who has become quite famous because of her research into bias in face recognition algorithms. She, a few years ago, was at her computer at the MIT Media Lab just kind of playing around with some facial recognition software. This is, again, off-the-shelf stuff that anybody with an internet connection and a couple of bucks can download, made by companies like Microsoft, Amazon, Face++ is another one of these companies. And she basically was just playing with one of these systems and discovered she is a relatively dark-skinned black woman that these systems could not even detect that she had a face. And so she thought, huh, this is strange. She put on a white mask, literally a white mask, and immediately the system detected her face.
2: I've seen this mask too, and it's not like a mask that has any definition to it. It's it's like a hockey mask.
3: That's right, yeah. So she was surprised by that and started digging in. And what she found is pretty remarkable and pretty disturbing. She found that even face surveillance technologies developed and open on the market for anybody to use exhibit really quite extreme racial and gender bias. She's been very careful to make sure that everybody understands that her research is intersectional in the sense that it was not the case that she found huge rates of disparity in terms of these systems ability to identify or classify the faces of dark skinned men, although there were problems greater there than the problems with white men she found alarming rates of misclassification with black women, dark-skinned women in particular, rates of up to 35% misidentification, whereas these systems were identifying white men at basically 99% accuracy rates.
2: But it sounds like there are two things happening here, and maybe you can clear this up. One is that the face recognition systems are not recognizing dark skin, but but they're also misclassifying dark-skinned women in the example that you just cited. So how are they misclassifying faces if they can't read them?
3: So different systems behave differently. And over the course of her research, there have been a series of software updates, basically. Um, So, you know, some of the technologies that initially didn't even recognize her face later were able to recognize that a black woman had a face, but were unable to properly classify that face.
2: Let's get into how bias is baked into the system in a moment. But But I wonder if you could first summarize the ACLU's test of Amazon's recognition software, in which it falsely identified lawmakers as criminals,
3: and more than half were people of color. So my colleagues in California and in the Northern California ACLU used Amazon's recognition product, again, this open access API that anybody in the world can use, compared all of the images of members of Congress, their official portraits to a mugshot database containing 20,000 mugshots. And sure enough, 28 members of Congress were falsely matched as being included in this database. And as you said, those were disproportionately members of color. So yes, study after study, scan after scan, test after test, is revealing that there are significant racial and, in some cases, gender bias problems with this technology.
2: So Cade, let's talk about how bias gets into the system. Could you describe how data are collected, whose data are collected, and how a huge amount of data are used to train AI systems?
3: Yeah. I think starting at the first instance with data and classification is really instructive. Kate Crawford, who despite having a very similar sounding name to mine and despite working in the same field is not the same person, uh, who is a researcher at Microsoft who founded the AI Now Institute with Meredith Whitaker, She and her partner in crime, Trevor Paglin, who's an artist who does a lot of really fascinating work on surveillance and data, together dove in to what is the largest machine learning image training set in the world. It's a database called ImageNet. You can look it up. You can access the information in ImageNet right now on your computer. And machine learning specialists all over the world have used this training data set for a long time to train their models. There are huge numbers of categories of images on this website. They also, up until Kate and Trevor discovered this and published some information about it, had a whole section on people. So the people section was really, really interesting. They started looking into it. They discovered effectively that the way images were classified and the way that they made their way into the ImageNet database was like this. If you, for example, wanted an image of a raccoon or a series of images of raccoons to train a model, you would Google raccoon, Google image search that, use a tool to automatically scrape the first five pages of Google results, dump that into a file, and then hire what are known as mechanical Turk workers. So these are people who are very low wage gig employees who work all over the world on an Amazon-owned system called Mechanical Turk to basically train machine learning models and to classify data sets and do other data tasks. So it's not machines learning how to identify these images without human input. It's a 1,000% humans telling machines what, what these images are exactly. So this is one way that the bias can creep in. So the way that the stories that they've told about what the people section of the ImageNet database looks like is really remarkable. So just imagine, instead of a raccoon, you are trying to classify maybe what a terrorist looks like, right? So you, again, do the same idea. You search on Google Image the word terrorist. You scrape the first five pages into a database. You then have Mechanical Turk workers go through each of those images and click yes or no. Is this a terrorist? Maybe you get two out of three Mechanical Turk workers agreeing that an image is of a terrorist. That image then goes into the file labeled terrorist. And that becomes one of the images that trains a machine learning model in learning how to identify what a terrorist looks like.
2: It sounds like we're training our machines the way we train young children. We're teaching machines how to name things in the world. And so how machine learning works is that you show the machine hundreds or thousands of images of raccoons, for example, and pretty soon it knows what a raccoon looks like. Now, if someone mislabels a raccoon, That error is probably inconsequential, but there are consequences to subjective interpretations of what a man looks like, or a woman, or a criminal.
3: That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, when you start to get into very complex neural networks, for example, these are artificial intelligence systems that even the engineers who are designing them do not totally understand. So in other words, you feed a system some data, you create an algorithm, and the system is so complex because it's examining so many different questions at the same time and coming up with new ways based off of how it has learned from you know itself effectively, <laughs> uh, based off of those inputs and parameters that an engineer has set, that the engineer does not, at the output level, truly understand how the machine made the decision so if we're talking about technology that is sufficiently complex that even the engineers who breathe the rarefied air at stanford and at mit and in mountain view don't fully understand We're entering new territory. We're entering a territory where regulation becomes very difficult, where it becomes very difficult to think about how to manage discrimination. There's a good example of this. Facebook has been allowing people in the past To buy advertisements for jobs. So, you know, job advertisements. I'm hiring a computer engineer. I want to put an ad on Facebook. Facebook has been allowing people to do that and to target those advertisements towards white men between the ages of 25 and 35. That's illegal under federal law. You know, you're not allowed to do that. It's similar to putting up a sign in a window that says, job opportunity available. You know, blacks need not apply.
2: So, when you say that it targets White men between the ages of 25 and 35, that means that the ads for computer engineers only appear
3: on their Facebook pages and not on the pages of anyone else? That's exactly right. So the ACLU and some unions became aware that this was happening and filed an equal opportunity complaint against Facebook to try to get them to reform this practice. But that's even a very simple example of how complex systems and artificial intelligence and machine learning are a variety of those. But even a complex system like Facebook's advertising portal can hide, can basically mask discrimination because it's invisible, as you said, to the people who are being discriminated against. They don't know this is happening. They can't see the sign in the window.
2: Well, finally, Cade, you said that there are some AI researchers that they themselves don't understand how these sophisticated systems arrive at their conclusions. But another problem is, is that these algorithms are considered proprietary information by the companies that build them. So even if the rest of us could, the metaphor is look under the hood and find out where the bias is and what's going on,
3: we're not allowed to. The proprietary nature of these tools is deeply troubling and we should all be very concerned about our ability as individuals in a free society, in a democracy, to maintain control over our own lives and how these systems are making decisions about us or for us or on our behalf or nudging us in certain directions. Kate Crockford, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you so much.
0: Kade Crockford is director of the Technology for Liberty program at the ACLU of Massachusetts, and you can find a link to her work and that of all our guests on our website.
2: All those data, all your data, that AI feeds on for machine learning are what makes it powerful. And the prominent machine learning tools are developed and owned by a handful of companies, which this expert says is a problem.
4: I'm Amy Webb. I am a quantitative futurist and the author of The Big Nine, Why Today's Tech Titans and Their Thinking Machines Could Warp Humanity. What it means when algorithms are proprietary, next.
0: It's our regular look at critical thinking, Skeptic Check. This episode, Data Bias on Big Picture Science. bias can seriously infect data and the algorithms that determine everything from access to basic resources and services to whom we flag as a danger to society. Now we're talking about why data are not always neutral in this episode, and if we want to ensure that they represent society fairly, this is the time to step in. It's still early days for AI, say the experts. But
2: most of us are sluggish about taking preventative steps because, well, humans are terrible at evaluating long-term risks, says Amy Webb. She's a futurist and the director of the Future Today Institute at New York University's Stern School of Business.
0: Although we're not entirely blasé, we are worried about some potential dangers from AI. That Terminator is out there. It can't be bargained with. It can't be reasoned with. It doesn't feel pity
4: or remorse, or fear, and it absolutely will not stop, ever, until you are dead.
0: But it's probably not the killer robots that are going to get us.
4: I don't think that our immediate concerns are, you know, walking, talking robots that are coming to murder us in our sleep. We have a lot of other very real-world, much more concrete issues at hand.
2: Sorry, I can't help with that. I can laugh. tee <laughs> Did that answer
0: your question? Amy Webb says the most worrisome scenario is the creep toward dependency on artificial intelligence in our daily lives. You probably unconsciously let AI make all kinds of decisions for you, whether with your smartphone, GPS navigation, social media feeds, video games, banking services...
2: While AI is becoming invisible to us, it is the bright, defining market strategy at the core of a handful of tech companies. The six in the U.S. form Amy Webb's acronym, G-Mafia. Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, IBM, and Apple. And if the big three in China, Baidu, Tencent, and Alibaba are unfamiliar to you now, give them time.
0: Yeah, well, except time is what we don't have, she says. Like the sensors of a car in reverse, her book is a warning the Big Nine, why today's tech titans and their thinking machines could warp humanity. The corporations comprise an elite group whose faces don't reflect society's diversity and whose algorithms lack transparency, she says.
4: Systems that are making decisions for us, about us, by us, that were built by people who tend to work in homogenous groups that don't necessarily share our own worldviews. And that's important because when systems are making recommendations, when systems are built to authenticate others, you start seeing the cracks in those systems when Different groups of people are in some way disenfranchised, which we're already starting to see. There's plenty of evidence.
0: One example of how AI algorithms can create a problem was, uh, well, it came forward in 2017 when an airline apparently overbooked its flight and and a passenger was removed forcibly from the plane. The
4: video of that event went viral. What happened and, you know, was this really AI's fault? So on that flight, there was a passenger named David Dow who uh, was a physician. He was on a flight and had boarded it, and the flight was oversold. Um, There were some other circumstances surrounding needing to have extra seats on that plane, but you know the gate agents were given a name, and it happened to be his, and he was asked to leave the flight and to make room for another passenger, and he refused to leave, and. You know, things escalated, and uh, everybody involved was simply following along a preset series of rules, which is the definition of an algorithm. And as everybody probably knows, he was forcibly removed; his face was bloodied. Uh, became a PR nightmare for United. Now, was it artificial intelligence itself that was the cause of all of this? No, but it was the genesis of the cause. There was an algorithm that made a decision, and it didn't take into context any of the personal details or circumstances not only of this particular passenger, but of everybody else on the plane. And then all the humans simply did what the algorithm said to do. And I think that's the problem, and I think also something for us to really think about going forward.
0: But but was that really the fault of AI? I mean, suppose the tickets had all been booked manually, as they used to be, Uh, you know,
4: you could have had the exact same thing happen. Sure. I mean, I happen to know that that's what the issue was, because a few months later, I talked to some executives within the airline industry. To me, what this illustrates is a circumstance in which machines and systems are calling the shots, and we are obeying what the systems tell us to do. And we see that as fairly common practice now throughout many different industries in ways that are both insignificant and profound.
0: We're not particularly good at assessing risks. Uh, I'm thinking now fear of flying, you know, comparing that risk to the fear of driving to the airport, which people usually don't even consider, even though it's far larger than the, than the former, is the fact that we don't see a danger in AI uh, simply because it's kind of hidden from us that it's, it's not
4: manifest
0: You know, I think there's a couple
4: of things going on. We tend not to think about future risk, in part because we are cognitively limited. So the front part of our brain is the one part that is charged with assessing and looking at patterns, recognizing those patterns and making decisions. And it's that front part of the brain that's kept us alive and evolving for all of these years. What's interesting um, is that there have been a whole bunch of studies done where people have been hooked up to fMRIs to look at their brain activity in real time. And the farther out in the future you ask somebody to go to think about themselves and assess their risk um, and potentially also their opportunity, what's interesting is that that part of the brain shows less and less activity. And as a result of that, we fail to make the connection between ourselves and the future and the present. Instead, our brains interpret that future more as a fictional story where we're simply observing characters rather than our real selves. I guess I'm sort of saying it's, if you're disinclined to think about future risk when it comes to AI, it's not entirely your fault. Part of it is your biology.
0: The title of your book uh, sings out the fact that there are nine companies, Google, Amazon, Apple, IBM, Microsoft, Facebook, whatever, you call the G-mafia that are dominating uh, AI development in this country. What's the worry there?
4: Well, you know, the worry is that we don't have any global norms and standards. We don't have a common set of values. We don't have a sense of ethics, at least not in a way that makes sense to everybody. And as a result, we have a lot of deep uncertainty. And there's very little coordination at this point between all of the key players. And certainly there's very little coordination between government and the big tech companies, which is why you're now seeing all of these calls for regulation.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm going to press you a little bit more on this because I'm kind of uh, interested to hear how you see this in terms of being especially worrisome because these nine companies that you talk about in your book are very dominant in the field of AI, but AI is a, you know, it's a very general technology. I mean, there are people down the hall from where I'm sitting who are working on AI for purposes of, uh, you know, science really, and they're working in teams of two or three, and that's a big enough team to develop an entirely new AI application because the tools are out there. I'm thinking that uh, this is somewhat similar to the situation 250 years ago when the steam engine You know, in the beginning, the steam engines were only being made by a very small number of organizations, but very quickly, because it's a general technology. You know, there are all sorts of steam engines, and you know, they were sort of customized for whatever had to be done. Now, if there are problems with the application of AI, then indeed you need regulation and so forth. But uh, the the fact that there are only nine, and to say only nine, nine seems like a big number to me. Only nine
4: major companies playing in this field is it really troubling? Well. I don't think the steam engine is analogous because steam engines don't make decisions on their own. We're not talking about a singular technology or a basic technology. There are thousands of decisions that go into a commercial-facing or even research-facing application. And at a very basic level, those decisions have to do with which data set to use and whether or not that data set can be used ethically and whether or not there is bias, you know, inside of that data set. If you have a group of three people, they can be very, very smart, but if they are three Caucasian males who may not be thinking about issues outside of their existing group, they're probably not going to recognize the bias that might be, for example, in a database full of images. You know, we also have to start asking questions around fundamental basic research in important areas and the potential negative outcomes of that research. So there's an interesting relatively new field within AI related to machines working in collaboration but also sort of tricking each other as part of the learning process and that whole area is called generative adversarial network uh, research and basically One system is trying to trick another system into believing that the information is true. And part of the way that that happens is generating images or sounds over and over and over again at such a rapid pace that within a relatively short amount of time, the result is something that to us humans looks, sounds, feels very authentic. That is sort of the basis for deep fakes, and I'm sure everybody listening at this point knows about videos where public officials have had words put into their mouths or instances of celebrities having their faces swapped onto other people's bodies in movies. You know, AI applications are the result of layers of decisions and a bad decision early on in the process. You know, you, this is just like math, right? You, you put bad data in, you get bad data out.
0: Well, okay, so what's the solution?
4: Well, there isn't a solution. There are many different things that have to be done, and those things range from developing a core set of standards. You know, these may be autonomous systems that make their own decisions, but our human DNA is very much already inside of them. So we need some kind of global set of norms and standards that detail our values, our ethics, and... They can't be suggestions, so we need an enforcement mechanism to make sure that there's some accountability and that all of the companies in the ecosystem are actually following them. Because right now, we have an opportunity to influence the future.
0: Amy Webb, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thank you.
2: Amy Webb is a quantitative futurist, and she is the author of The Big Nine, Why Today's Tech Titans and Their Thinking Machines Could Warp Humanity.
0: Okay, so what we've seen in the show is that while we live in a quantitative age where rules of thumb have been replaced by data-driven analysis, well, sometimes there's still a thumb on the scales. Existing technologies and sciences, car design, medicine are still stuck in the era of average Joe, and really, that's an average white Joe.
2: You know, another area where we need to be skeptical is what our eyes are telling us. I'm new to this phenomena of deep fakes. These are videos and photos that have been manipulated to show something that didn't happen. Have you ever seen a deep fake?
0: Well, every time you go to a Hollywood movie these days, of course, you see deep fakes. It's called computer animation. But it hasn't been applied before to public figures like uh, politicians, the president, the king, whatever.
2: (laughs) Have you ever seen one of these videos of deep fakes?
0: Yeah, I have seen some deep fakes where they, you know, you have some public figure, whether it's a politician or a Hollywood star, and they're saying something that they never said. It's giving a whole new meaning to putting words in somebody's mouth.
2: Well, thanks to the careful data control of our all-human team, senior producer Gary Niederhoff, assistant producer Sarah Derwin, operations manager Barbara Vance. I am executive producer Molly Bentley.
0: Thanks also to financial support from Rena Scholsky, David, and Sammy David, and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization whose scientists study the origin, nature, and prevalence of life, including the formation of planets. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak, and I do my best to avoid bias. Also, a big thanks to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to our
2: monthly episode of Critical Thinking, Skeptic Check on Big Picture Science. This episode, Data Bias. If you want to hear more Big Picture Science, well, you'll find past episodes in our archive at bigpicturescience.org.
0: You may be listening to our radio show, but if you want BiPiSci to better conform to your gusto grabbing lifestyle, why not subscribe to the BiPiSci podcast? That way you'll never miss an episode. You'll find links on our website to the platforms that carry us.
4: Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. You don't need to be a scientist to hold that lamp. Look for evidence. Keep on thinking. Trimberger.org.